KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Los Angeles docks open round the clock to untangle the supply chain. The supply chain isn't built to take a sustained chunk of time and bounce back like it did before. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Inflation on items from gas to groceries is soaring in San Diego. In Western markets, especially in California, we have higher housing costs and gas prices. So that's why we're always sort of at the top end of inflation. California's Reparations Task Force hears testimony on racial inequities, and we revisit a scientific journey into the world of waves and beaches. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Port of Los Angeles will soon start operating on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis in an attempt to start untangling the supply chain slowdown across the country. The Biden administration reached that deal to ease a cargo ship bottleneck at the L.A. and Long Beach ports. The two facilities are responsible for almost half of all imports into the United States. But it almost certainly will not be enough to fix the shortages plaguing our consumer economy. Everything from groceries to computer chips to running shoes and more have felt the crunch of an international supply chain suffering from pandemic disruption. Opinions vary on how long this problem will last, but there seems to be one universal bit of advice from experts across the country, and that is shop early for the holidays. Joining me is SDSU business lecturer Miro Kopik. And Miro, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Maureen. Glad to be back. Now, it's still hard to understand why so many aspects of the supply chain have broken down. We hear about manufacturing shortages, transportation delays, backups at ports, and a shortage of truck drivers. How is the pandemic responsible for all of these things? Well, the easy answer is that our supply chain, the global supply chain, is based on a just-in-time approach. That means goods and services go across borders just in time to be delivered where they need to go. If there are disruptions from natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, fires to a pandemic, the supply chain isn't built to take a sustained chunk of time and and bounce back like it did before. And so you have a lot of different parts of the of the chain 
and the dominoes that are falling at different times, which is making it very difficult. For example, aside from all these tankers, you know, waiting to arrive with shipments of goods from uh, foreign ports that are stacked outside of Long Beach or, or Los Angeles, for example, the countries that make these products have closed down at varying points. So all of a sudden, they're catching up, and all of a sudden, they're sh- sending stuff late and in bulk. And, and, and there's a whole cascade of effects. So, for example, the containers that are on these ships generally rent for about $3,000 a container from point A to point B. Right now, those containers cost $20,000 uh, because of the need for all manufacturers to get their goods and services in time for the holidays. So it's all stacked up at once. Something like a shortage of computer chips or cars that go into those containers, that might make sense. But why groceries like diet soda? Well, uh, that's the cans. So the metal that, you know, you know, Pepsi or Coke imports, you know, some is produced in the United States, but a lot of it comes from different parts of the world because the cost structure is much better. And so those countries, those places could have been shut down for a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, if a factory is not producing parts, that's a major issue. I'll give you a case in point. For example, Vietnam. So after COVID started, there was a big concern that across so many industries, over 50% of the production was being done in China. So American manufacturers were asked, hey, can we diversify? One of the countries that manufacturers had been starting to work with and, and shifted some production to was Vietnam. Vietnam produces toys, produces um, apparel items, and they were fairly spared in the first round of COVID in 2020. But in 2021, they got hit hard. And when you're talking about, you know, a potentially eight, nine, 10% of production all of a sudden goes offline for a period of time, all the raw materials that go into that are disrupted. They're, they're stuck in different places. And so that's a major issue. So whether it's products that are produced ultimately domestically on a, on a soda line at Pepsi or Coke, or they're produced at a, in, in a foreign destination, all those different materials come from different places. So these supply chains are very, very sophisticated And it's a lot of moving parts simultaneously. And so, you know, when there's that kind of disruption and the different parts don't come together at the same time, and until that kind of evens out and all the parts of the supply chain work together again, there's still going to be disruptions. Are these supply chain shortages interfering with America's economic recovery? Unfortunately, yes. The the two things that are interfering with the America's economic recovery are the Delta variant that really impacted the, the pace of economic growth. So in the first and second quarters of the year this year, GDP grew 6.5 and a revised 6.9%. So we really were on an incredible trajectory. The third quarter GDP numbers will be reported in about 30 days, and they are going to really show the same way the labor markets reacted. Uh, you know, we were getting eight, 900,000 new jobs created in the in the second quarter. And then in July, August, September, the, the pace of, of job growth declined, the pace of consumer spending declined. And so, yes, it's going to impact our economic growth. So, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the IMF both reduced the forecast uh, for the third quarter to about 5% or just below that. And we're going to see what's going to happen in the fourth quarter because this is a really important quarter with respect to holiday shopping. And it goes back now to these supply disruptions. Okay, so when it comes to shopping this holiday season, what can people expect? 
for the holidays, jewelry should not be affected for the most part. Um, you know, gift cards won't be affected, right? Uh, there's going to be, for example, toys. If you're not shopping for toys now, uh, you may not have your favorite toy for your child or loved one if, if you're going to shop in middle to end of November. There may be shortages of key toys, uh, even for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. If we think about it, the, the reason toys will be affected, anything that's plastic or metal is produced in China or elsewhere. And some manufacturers actually are making decisions not to ship certain toys right now. So any kind of toys that are plastic or metal, Apparel items, I, I would absolutely be looking at those right now because the vast majority of apparel items are produced in uh, China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and all those places have had issues with COVID and supply disruptions. So there's going to be gaps at, at various apparel retailers and, and then consumer electronics and, and small appliances, uh, even refrigerators uh, and, and larger appliances because they contain microchips are also affected. And, and so if you're just going to start early, I would certainly, you know, recommend across everything except for maybe jewelry to at least browse. And, and if you see it and it's something that you really want, I strongly recommend that you get it. Now, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase says that we're focusing too much on these supply chain issues. And he says it won't be an issue next year at this time. Do you think he's right I, I do. Yes. Jamie Dimon is, is very sharp. Uh, JP Morgan looks at these flows. He has many corporate customers and they see their, their balance sheets and their income statements. Um, I truly believe the same way, you know, inflation has been ticking up. All of this will, will kind of play through if, and this is the big if, if this whole Delta variant and, and, and COVID really does not bounce back for a third or fourth or fifth time. If we kind of get to a either, you know, a very manageable level, all those supply chain issues should resolve themselves over the next three or four months. The issue is that coming out of COVID, you know, in, in the first two quarters of 2021, you know, consumers started coming back in big chunks. They had saved, you know, money. There wasn't a lot of spending going on during COVID other than essentials. And so they're all trying to buy things at the same time, not just in the United States, but in Europe, in Asia, in Latin America. And so you're, you're asking the supply chain to all of a sudden go from zero to 100 in a nanosecond. That's the analogy. And it's just not set up that way. It may go to zero to 30, zero to 40, which is pretty impressive. But the amount of demand is what kind of caused these, these supply chain issues. And so once demand kind of modulates and the supply chains ease as countries are able to meet their commitments on time, things will kind of smooth out. I've been speaking with SDSU business lecturer Miro Kopik. Miro, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Maureen. San Diego has one of the highest inflation rates in the nation, according to data released by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics' Consumer Price Index for the month of September. The increased inflation rate is indicative of the heavy economic toll of the years-long pandemic. As the holiday season approaches, higher prices and a greatly stressed supply chain are uncovering what experts are calling a greatly overstimulated economy, one where consumers end up paying the price. Joining me with more is the San Diego Union-Tribune senior business reporter, Philip Molnar. Philip, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. 
So can you give us a snapshot of this increased inflation rate? What's causing this jump and why are things particularly bad in San Diego? Okay, so we've seen inflation really rising throughout 2021 across the entire nation. But San Diego typically is hit a little bit harder because in Western markets, especially in California, we have higher housing costs and gas prices. So that's why we're always sort of at the top end of inflation. But what's been sort of interesting this year is, you know, a lot of the experts, especially even the Federal Reserve, were saying that inflation rate is going to go really high up as soon as we're out of all these pandemic restrictions. And then just everybody calm down because after that's over, it's going to level out. What we've seen is the inflation rate keeps going up. And that's why I've been reporting on it like every two months. So last month was 6% inflation rate, which is pretty wild to begin with. And then this month was 6.5%. So it's, it's growing and it's, it is a cause for concern. So where are some of the biggest areas where consumers are feeling the effects of inflation? So where consumers are feeling it most is for gas. Unleaded regular is up 40.4% in a year. It's a huge jump. And other jumps are for used cars and trucks, up 23.4%, and energy in general, which is up 31.3%. And you note that we're seeing some of the highest prices in all of the pandemic. Is that expected to drop anytime soon? You know, most experts I talk to for this article do not anticipate a major drop, which is sort of frustrating because it really, when there's these high price gains, People that are always hit hardest are the low-income workers in San Diego. We have to pay more out of pocket because, in general, they just make less money. So there's a lot of things going on. There's a really stressed supply chain right now, which is creating more demand for products, which rises the prices. But one of the things is that a lot of people that didn't need all that stimulus money that was pumped into the economy... Now they're doing much better. Their their financial picture is better, especially if you were a stay-at-home worker. So a lot of those people have more money than they did at this time last year. And that really, a lot of spending power for all these goods that we're talking about that drives up the price because everyone's got money to buy them. Are these rising prices causing employers to consider permanently raising wages? Well, you know what's funny? Whenever I report on the inflation, I always ask the same question like, is an employer going to read this article or listen to this radio program and say, oh, dang, I got to raise all my rate, my, my wages right now, or my employees are going to be really hurting. And what I've kind of found, even though it might not be the case at whatever business you're at when you're reading the story or listening, but wages are significantly up in San Diego. So it might not be necessarily that employers see this inflation and say, yo, I need to really raise my wages. The fact is it's already happening. For instance, the latest data I have is for May, 2021, where the average wage in San Diego, and keep in mind it's average, so it's going to be weighted to really high wages are going to change things. But the average wage was 34.95 cents an hour. That is an 18% increase in two years. So things are really up. And even in normal circumstances, metropolitan areas in California have higher than average inflation rates than the rest of the nation. How is the added pandemic stress making that worse? Well, gas prices is probably the biggest thing that moves the market one way or the other. California gas prices are always higher. So if you see a big jump in gas prices, that's definitely going to affect our inflation rate. One of the things in the past, just about 
uniformly across most coastal California markets is higher housing costs. So that, that often pushes the needle for inflation. But in this case right now, what we're seeing where the big surge is, is these price for used cars and back to gas prices. That's really what's affecting right now. But in general, typically when you get these numbers, San Diego and Los Angeles and Riverside, we're usually up at the top. What do these high inflation rates signify for consumers in the long term? Well, for right now, it's rough if you're trying to do a few things. Let me give you a scenario. So say you're sort of a low-income worker and you've just re-entered the economy, you've got a new job, but you need a car to get there and your last car broke down. Well, it's going to be really hard to get a used car because they're super expensive right now. And new car prices aren't up as much as used cars, but then again, that's a way bigger expense. So that's something you need to consider there. Also, food prices are way up. You know, but one of the things you can kind of see from the inflation data is where you could make a mistake. So for instance, for food and beverage costs, food prices are up 7.6%. But when we break that down a little bit, food prices at home are up 5.7%, but food costs at restaurants are up 10.1%. So you might want to, looking at all this data, if you want to make an informed decision, maybe not eat out as much. Now, inflation is bad enough for consumers, but a less considered aspect of this is how a jump in prices can affect costs for businesses as well. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, for businesses, this could have a long-term effect on the economy here in San Diego because the cost for materials is going way up. And as we just spoke about the wages, you have to have wages higher to keep workers in San Diego right now. So all those costs are going to cut into the bottom line of businesses. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that business is good right now because there is, as we spoke about, a lot more spending power. But it's kind of tough when you break it all down. And we'll see sort of by the end of the year that the costs are really increasing for businesses, especially smaller ones. And it might be a question of whether or not they survive these next few months. Is there a historical precedent for inflation numbers right now? Sort of, except we haven't really seen much of a precedent in the last 20 years. If you go back 20 years, the average inflation rate jump has been around 2.6%. We've had some really high points in San Diego history, about 11% in 1974, 13.5% in 1981, and it did get up to 6% in 1990, but that was sort of an outlier year. So what that means is that most millennials alive today have not yet experienced a high inflation environment. They haven't really lived through it. So it's funny, I talked to some economists uh, yesterday and I was saying, well, how are all these millennials, I'm a millennial, how are all these millennials going to deal with you know, this? How are they going to weather this? And one of the economists I spoke to was like, well, I don't think they have a choice. <laughs> and he's right. So yeah, we're all, a lot of us are living through this for the first time and it's sort of unique. Hmm. I've been speaking with the San Diego Union-Tribune senior business reporter, Philip Molnar. Philip, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Homes lowballed for hundreds of thousands of dollars during appraisals. Students profiled and ushered into the school-to-prison pipeline. These are a couple of ways contemporary harms of racism impact Black Americans. This week, California's Reparations Task Force met to explore those harms in everything from housing and education to banking and environmental racism. Attorney Camila Moore is chair of the Reparations Task Force and joins us to discuss their findings and what's next. Camila, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So first, let's define our terms. For those who may not know, when we talk about reparations, what does that mean and who does it apply to in this context? So in this specific context, um, the term reparations implies um, the need for a repair of harm caused to a particular victim group. So uh, the reparations task force, our scope and powers is predicated by AB 3121, which was a legislative bill authored by uh, then assembly member, but now Secretary of State Shirley Weber. And it was signed into uh, passage by Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, October, 2020. And so the mandate of AB 3121 requires the nine member task force to study um, the history of slavery um, in this country and um, of harms to the Black American community post-slavery. And then it also charges the task force after you know, an extensive study um, of those harms since slavery and onward for us to then develop proposals for reparations in order to repair the harm done to that particular group. Hmm. And and over the last two days, the task force has heard witness testimony that speaks to that. Tuesday, you heard about housing and education segregation. Uh, what stood out to you about what you heard on that subject matter? Most notably, we had two uh, young men uh, provide personal testimony. Uh, one, his name was Mr. Kavika Smith, and he was actually the named plaintiff against the University of California charging them with discrimination for their use of ACT and and, and, and SCT scores. And then on the kind of other side, we had Mr. Jacob Jackson, who is now an LA County Youth Commissioner, but he talked about his story surviving the school to prison pipeline. And so what stood out to me is that these two young Black men, one, you could say, exceeded expectations and completely survived the school to prison pipeline. Now he's at Morehouse. But even after surviving the school to prison pipeline, he had to deal with discriminatory practices in trying to get to college. Um, And he was successful in his suit, right? Because now I just saw on TV this morning that dozens of colleges across the state and even the country are getting rid of their ACT and SAT test requirements and are implementing a more holistic admissions process. And then with Jacob Jackson, Um, He talked about, like I said, his experience 
as a student at Crenshaw High School in LA, getting arrested at an early age, returning his life around. And now he's a commissioner at LA County. So they both came to the same conclusion in terms of Black students need more resources, whether that's through K through 12. And then once they get to college, as Mr. Kavika eloquently stated, once we get to college, there needs to be resources there so that people can actually matriculate and graduate. And in Jacob's case, he was arrested because he was profiled, right? Right, absolutely. He told a story about his teacher profiling him and the teacher making some very inappropriate comments to him. So yes, absolutely. It was unfortunate to hear that that happened to him, but I'm I'm so grateful that he imparted his story to the task force because his story is of many stories. And you also talked about environmental racism. And, you know, when we talk about environmental racism, um, we're talking about also, you know, Black communities that are being hit harder by climate change and that the heat rises within those neighborhoods. We're talking about communities that have ground soil contamination and water contamination. I mean, tell me about that. What we learned at the the hearing, uh, we heard testimony around Black Californians being exposed to air pollution and other, you know, environmental contaminants due to displacement or due to conscious decisions by industries and government choosing to place environmentally harmful factories and industries in in, in Black communities. You know, you all also heard about racism in banking, tax, and labor. A testimony from Paul Austin stood out to me. He was a homeowner who was lowballed by 500K on his appraisal. Tell me about his story and how common that is. So, Paul Austin and his wife, Tanisha Austin, as you stated, their home was appraised for $500,000 less than when their um, white friend, who um, help them out, switch, you know, their African and Black art out of the house, switched out um, uh, uh, pictures of their, of their family, and then placed into their house pictures of their white friend's family and things like that. And then once that happened, as you stated, uh, their house was appraised for $500,000 more. And to your question about how common this is, uh, uh, after the story broke and after the story went viral, um, seven or eight other families um, came out and told their stories about the same thing happening to them. And then something else that I found was very eye-opening from Paul Austin's testimony is that he said that he is a descendant of the Great Migration. His family came from the South to um, the Bay Area. And his grandfather, actually, um, he, he told a story about his grandfather and how his grandfather had to build a house in the Bay Area in the 40s and 50s at night and on weekends. And then the plot of land, um, uh, the house was hidden. The driveway was like on a 90 degree angle. He had to do all of that, his grandfather said, so that he wouldn't be detected by white racists. And um, he even said that I think the white woman who sold his grandfather the house was even blackballed in the uh, real estate industry for selling that house to his, his, his grandfather. And so Paul Austin imparted that story to the task force to, 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 to show his dismay about, you know, my grandfather's worked so hard. And in a way, I'm still dealing with these same issues 
as a black homeowner. Hmm. And, you know, all of that is contributes to the wealth gap. What do you see as a solution? Uh, it reminds me of something that another uh, expert imparted to us, uh, Dr. William Spriggs. He, he made a good point about the racial wealth gap when he talked about, for instance, firemen, black and white firemen. Some of these black firemen in the 40s and 50s had more credentials than the white firemen, but they were getting paid half as much. And so he was saying the racial wealth gap, look at it in the lens of saving, right? These white firemen over a length of time, given that they were able to get paid twice as much as the black firemen, think about all the money that they were able to save over time and the money that black, these black firemen were not able to save and how that even contributes to the racial wealth gap. So in terms of solutions, the task force actually hired in our September meeting an economics consultant. He is going to be working with the task force to come up with calculations, right, to figure out how to close the racial wealth gap and figure out what potential compensation could be provided to California, a Black Californians. I've been speaking with Camila Moore, chair of California's Reparations Task Force. Camila, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Shape. Appreciate it. We often look to the sea to understand how climate change has impacted our world. For years, oceanographer Kim McCoy has been studying environmental change in our ocean. And in his new book, Waves and Beaches, The Powerful Dynamics of Sea and Coast, he offers his insights and perspectives on the fascinating world of ocean science and how it furthers our understanding of climate change. We spoke to him about the book in March. Here's that interview. So start off by telling our listeners a little bit about the book. Well, this is the third edition of a book, Waves and Beaches, and it was accepted and loved by surfers and scientists throughout the last few decades. It was originally published in 64. And I brought it up to date with the significance of climate change and how humans interact in the coastal zone. And that's where the items that are going to be disturbing us from sea level rise are going to hit us the hardest. And the book is something of an update of the original publication by Willard Bascom. What about the original book inspired you and what did you hope to add to this updated edition? Well, I actually used the book in graduate school and it was almost a little pamphlet at that time. Then the second edition came and I was lucky to have known Willard Bascom quite well the last couple of years of his life, and he was endeavoring to do a third edition. This edition really focuses on how humans interact with the coastal zone, and it gives a fundamental understanding of how waves are created, how they propagate, and how they interact with the coastline. Of course, humans are on the coastline, and we want to know what's going to happen to the coastline in this period of climate change. And of course, a big part of your work deals with climate change. I mean, how has your work and, and your many travels furthered your understanding of environmental changes on, on the planet, particularly in the topics of global warming and sea level rise? Well, I've spent over a year of my life in polar regions. I've done nine trips to those areas. And I've spent years of my life at sea, over 40 major field experiments. And when I started out, 
some of the areas that I went to in the Arctic were extremely difficult. One area to get to, one area hadn't been visited since the 1840s, and that group died. So uh, in the 1980s, it was very difficult. Now there are cruise ships heading to those areas. So it's drastically changed. I spent a couple months in Antarctica, and there the penguin species that have been there for 5,000 years are being displaced by warmer species of penguins as the poles warm. So it's it's everywhere. The, the outflow from rivers and delta formations have completely changed because of how we've dammed the rivers and pulled lots of groundwater out that changes sea level and affects sand dynamics in the coastal region. And I mean, we know change is inevitable, but it seems like this is all happening at such an accelerated pace. Well, it is. You know, one proxy for that is how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, and everyone knows of this hockey stick. However, we can observe these things uh, very easily in Jakarta, Indonesia, in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, the Ganges Brahmaputra Delta in India and Bangladesh, and Kiribati in the South Pacific. These things are not fictitious. They are currently occurring where sea level rise is really attacking those those areas. And some of the groups are just simply ignoring it. And other countries, full countries, have codified it. And that's something that city councils and state assemblies and federal federal groups need to do. We need to codify that things are occurring along the coast, which means that instead of having a city council debating whether or not they're going to do this or do that, they just simply need to say, okay, when something like this occurs, it is now by law allowed, we're allowed to do something. So they don't say who's going to pay for it, things like that. And so that that change needs to occur. The updated text uh, provides perspective on some of the major climate events and disasters of the of the past 20 years, including the deadly 9.0 earthquake that devastated Japan 10 years ago this week. How do you think our understanding of climate change has evolved in that time? Well, the Toku earthquake that caused the disaster at Fukushima had, you know, that's a naturally occurring thing. Earthquakes were not influencing those. However, uh, um, the repercussions of that, the tsunami that struck Fukushima, changed global energy policies. It's subtle, but it's incredibly important and not to be ignored. The Japanese decided that they're going to remove nuclear power from their energy slate. Uh, the Germans also passed some laws, pulled nuclear reactors off the energy supply chain, and that needs to be replaced with other forms of energy production. That's because of a tsunami. This book looks at the dynamics of those things, and it looks how humans need to react. The book has a lot of references at the end of the book, so anyone who wants to get more involved, there's quite a bit of uh, information to dig deeper into quite a few subjects. And what have been some of the most obvious impacts here locally? Well, uh, not too long ago, we had a collapse along the railroad tracks up near Del Mar. Now, that track is the major conduit to the north in and out of San Diego. It collapsed. And people start asking, well, who's going to pay for it? There's an estimated 
cost of about $3 billion. No funding is currently available. And this project, if they relocate the tracks, should take 10 to 20 years. $3 billion. No funding is currently available. It might take 10 years to repair, but sea level creeps along a few millimeters every year. I'm curious, you know, has COVID-19 affected your ability to carry out your work and research? I mean, it's, it's hard to get much more socially distanced than out on the ocean, but I don't know. Well, interestingly enough, here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, COVID stopped the entire fleet from going out to sea. So for quite a few months, all the vessels were called back to ports and people were disembarked. And it was quite a few months until they reassumed field deployments. And that's extremely difficult for an oceanographic cruise. You go out and you plan for a year and you throw things overboard and you know you come back in a year or several months later and oops, oh, wait, we can't use the boat anymore. <laughs> because so uh, also along the coastal zone, uh, COVID has in a roundabout way, augmented awareness of the coastal zone. During the lockdown, the beaches were inundated with humans. Why? Because it's a nice, wonderful, open place. Well, those things are changing. I'm glad it brought awareness to it. But cliffs are collapsing and things such as roads, train tracks, naval shipyards, harbor facilities, coastal businesses, those things will continue to be inundated way beyond COVID. I've been speaking with author and oceanographer Kim McCoy. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jade, for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Just six weeks after the death of the San Diego-born Chicana artist and activist Yolanda Lopez, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego will reopen this weekend with an exhibition of Lopez's work. Surprisingly, the first solo museum exhibition of her long and celebrated career. Jill Dossey, curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, spoke with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans, and we hear from artists and curators Alessandra Moctezuma and Leticia Gomez-Franco. I want to start with the profound impact of Yolanda Lopez, beginning with Leticia Gomez-Franco, who is executive director of the Balboa Art Conservation Center, who has also curated Lopez's works in the past. One of my favorite visions of Yolanda Lopez has always been the photograph of herself inside of the Virgen de Guadalupe mantle, just the, the look on her face and to imagine her always in her youthfulness and in her her hunger and her eagerness and that and that passion that she always had but to try to put myself you know i always think uh what would i have done if i had been alive in the 70s and during the height of the chicano movement what role would i would have played uh and i i love imagining myself as a as a young and vibrant yolanda lopez um but i'm, I'm really excited to see um her virgen de guadalupe um, series, uh, because those were the first of her pieces that I saw, and, and those were the first of the pieces where I saw myself, and I saw 
ourselves. Jill Dossi from the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. On that note, can you give us a look into the art of Yolanda Lopez? I loved what Letitia was sharing in conjuring uh, Lopez's exuberant 1978 performance that was called Tableau Vivant, in which she appeared again as Guadalupe. And Guadalupe here is both an athlete and a cultural producer. And um, it's a series of photographs that, that document Lopez's performance in which, you know, it's sort of conceptual art meets improv comedy meets political revolution because she's wearing her UCSD track shorts and she has a handful of paintbrushes, which are the tools of her trade. And she's clasping them like a bouquet or she's, you know, holding them up in the air like a trophy. And you really have this sense of the contagious exuberance that defines many of her works. And in her most, uh, her most iconic work, which is the oil pastel portrait of the artist as the Virgin of Guadalupe, you know, in which she famously depicts herself as, as Guadalupe in, in running shoes, bounding off a black crescent moon and and, and Guadalupe's uh, star pet pattern mantle is billowing behind her and she's smiling broadly and you know there's this this sense of defiant joy and a kind of almost rebellious joyfulness and if we think of you know the virgin of guadalupe as a figure who was you know both this kind of lofty and an unrealistic vision of femininity uh you know one associated with um uh her own suffering and grief I think we get a sense of of why Lopez's self-portraits have been, you know, so so popular and so beloved and have inspired, you know, so many other iterations of the image. So the works that you're including in this exhibition are from the 1970s and the 1980s. Why these years and what was the backdrop for Lopez then? Our exhibition explores roughly a decade period in in Lopez's production. It was an incredibly transformative period when she had returned to San Diego in the early 1970s after a decade in San Francisco, a period in which she became, you know, an artist and activist of tremendous stature within the Chicano civil rights movement. Um, So she comes back to San Diego to complete her education first at San Diego State, where she um, got her BA. And then in 1975, she enters the Department of Visual Arts at UC San Diego. And it's this period in which she, you know, really through her embrace of Chicana feminism, produces this feminist corpus of work that investigates and and reimagines representations of women within Chicanx culture and society at large. And so, you know, during this period, she produces many of her most iconic and beloved works. We have more than, you know, 50 paintings, collages, photographs, and large-scale drawings in the show, and many that will be well-known and others that have never before been exhibited. Uh, The exhibition extends into the late 1980s when she concluded her well-known Guadalupe series and by that time had returned to San Francisco. And so it's this kind of, you know, very, it's it's very much a compendium of, of her work from, from this period. A lot has been said about the respect Lopez received during her lifetime in San Diego, as well as the role of women in Chicana history in the region. 
Here's Alessandra Moctezuma, who is the gallery director and museum studies professor at San Diego Mesa College, who also teaches Chicano art and teaches Lopez's work. One of the most important things that I, I, I took from Yolanda's work was seeing how she challenged uh, the whole concept of patriarchy. And that was not just in terms of the American patriarchy, but also uh, in terms of being a Latina and a Chicana artist. She encountered a lot of resistance, sometimes from, you know, from the men, the Chicano artists. This is well documented. There's a documentary about Chicano Park where there's a whole section where she talks about how hard it was to, you know, to get to paint the murals and how she supported a group of young women who wanted to paint in Chicano Park. Jill, what do we know about Lopez's activism and, and how she brought that into her art? So Lopez's roots in political activism were foundational to her artistic practice, and it retained throughout her career. She had moved to San Francisco in, in the early 1960s and in 1966 enrolled in San Francisco State College, now San Francisco State University, at a moment of just historic activism on campus and student groups were mobilizing in response to the Vietnam War, as well as to, you know, systemic racism at the university. And she was part of um, the five-month strike at SFSU that uh, shut down the university and resulted in the establishment of ethnic studies and black studies departments. And, you know, in the late 1960s, she was part of the larger, you know, Chicano civil rights movement. And so when she returns to San Diego in the early 70s, she really is an extraordinarily accomplished artist and activist. And I would just highlight the way in which it parallels, you know, the, her work as an activist and artist parallels the movements of our own day and, um, and really, you know, paved the way for those movements. And I, I asked Leticia Gomez-Franco whether Yolanda Lopez's life without major museum recognition until now is, is a symptom of Lopez's priority of being in the community, of being an activist, or whether it's a symptom of, of a bigger systemic and institutional oppression. And here's what she said. Being wary of institutions is, is in our Chicano DNA. <laughs> Wanting to make things accessible to the community and wanting to decentralize uh, things so that they uh, appeal to us on an everyday level. I think it's a, a big part of who we are as a community, but it doesn't mean that that it isn't necessary to have uh, a seat at that table um, in, within the institutions and, and within the larger American cultural canon. So it is disappointing to think that that we are now, you know, everybody's now hearing about Yolanda Lopez's work. Grateful to MCASD for, for giving her that space. Jill, this is the first time the Museum of Contemporary Art is reopening its doors since the pandemic. This is a long closure. And, and of course, so much has changed in the last year and a half. How is the, the museum handling a changed public and, and a changed art world? So it has been a period for us to do a lot of soul searching as an institution. We are talking a lot about 
you know, how we can be a more visitor-centric institution, a more welcoming museum um, where audiences can come and, you know, see themselves reflected. And I hope that that is, you know, is, is what can happen um, with the exhibition Yolanda Lopez Portrait of the Artist. That was Jill Dossi, curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, speaking with KPBS's Julia Dixon Evans. Yolanda Lopez Portrait of the Artist opens Saturday at MCASD. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.